sure you're tracking with the story that unfolded Thursday morning right here in Southern California as a 16-year-old boy on his 16th birthday went in and started shooting. By the time he was done, or the outflow of what he was done, he was dead, two of his classmates were dead, and three were injured. One of the injured girls who is going to survive um, rushed into the choir room along with some other students, and the teacher, who actually didn't look a whole lot older than the students, my heart really went out for everyone, but for her as this young woman who's probably just new in her job, who suddenly finds herself, instead of teaching people to sing, she's actually fighting for somebody's life, and she said, teachers aren't supposed to be paramedics, and she's treating this girl's wounds. She has, she has a gunshot wound kit in her classroom. What kind of world is it where that actually is a thing? and where there's actually training so she has a sense of what to do, and where there's actually regretfulness that she doesn't have two gunshot wounds in her classroom because the girl has two wounds. It's a crazy world. And when things like that happen, our hearts break, and we're just reminded uh, 16 seconds is all it took from start to finish, and the implications of that will carry on literally forever. People's lives are changed. it's a horrifying thing, and, and it reminds us that the world is broken, the world is damaged, the world is not a safe place. There's actual, genuine, real evil, and sometimes it's not even explicable. Sometimes we don't even understand. And in those kinds of moments, there's all kinds of questions and all kinds of fears and all kinds of concerns and all kinds of wrestlings that can well up within us And this morning, as we finish our series on the temple, it actually is the best answer to some of the questions that rise up in us. Um, Not that it's the most emotionally satisfying answer, because I don't think there actually is an emotionally satisfying answer. There's no way to emotionally say, well, that's okay. It's not okay, it's horrible, it's terrible, it's dreadful, it's painful. Nothing will change that. But it is powerful, and significant and has the potential to change reality. The answer that comes from our final message this morning actually deals with questions that well up like, where was God? Where is God when things are hard? Where is God when the cancer diagnosis comes through? Where is God when my spouse walks out the door? Where is God when the financial support that I had collapses and my whole life is turned upside down? Where is God when I lose my job? Where is God when I lose my way? Where is God when truly evil, wicked things happen? Where is he? What's he doing? And the answer to that is actually found in our series on the temple. And before we jump into our text, if you want to go ahead and open your Bible, please open to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll spend some time there. But I want to pray for us that God would open our minds and our hearts and that, um, that he would use this time to really change us. Because this can be significant, this can be life-changing. It's always that with the word of God, I think. But this morning in particular, against the backdrop that we're hearing, it's, it's a call to us to say, Where is God and where am I? So would you pray with me, Lord, as we open your word, would you open our hearts and our minds, grow us, shape us. Lord, use us, we pray in your name, amen.
If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the garden temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple. And this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So at the end of the story, 
do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. So we've seen that God was present, directly accessible, manifesting himself in his glorious presence to his people in the garden. We see that at the end of time in the New Jerusalem, same thing, there's no need for an actual temple because the presence of God is directly there. And between the garden and the New Jerusalem, there's this concept of temple that unfolds the scriptures. And there's the tabernacle first, and then Solomon's temple, then the second temple, which is enlarged by Herod. Both of those are destroyed. Jesus comes and presents himself as the temple, and today we come to the final piece that we're going to look at, the piece that will take all of that stuff and say, now what does it look like for me? So much of what we've done would would allow us to kind of look inward and say, okay, where am I with God, and what's my life like, and those are important things to do. This morning is about turning outward. I want you to look, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to look over your head and see if you can see that little square halo thing glowing above you. <laughs> you see it? I, you know, maybe you don't see it, but it's, it's there. And my goal is that this morning you would be uh, aware of that and respond to that. If you, if you like superhero movies, you get the concept, right? Because they always have these uh, alternate things that are true about them. There's this normal appearance thing and then there's this other thing and sometimes they don't even know it and they discover it part way through. Like when Star-Lord discovers who his dad is and he's kind of a creepy dad but he's got all this great power that he had no idea that he had and now the question is what's he gonna do with that? Or if you're from the dark side and you like DC Comics, then um, you know it's like the Man of Steel who's living with this constant tension of I've got two different kind of realities about me and what do I do with that? You and I are the temple of God. You are probably familiar with that if you've read through the New Testament more than just once or twice, but it may never have really registered. It's just kind of in passing. We see it like in the passage where it says, uh, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, so don't participate in in, uh, sexual sin. Or when we went through the book of Ephesians, it's like we're this new humanity being built up into a temple for God's presence And we kind of go, okay, interesting. Um, But the implications of that are staggering, right? And, And the thing that we need to understand is that you and I are the temple of God. What is temple? Temple is the connection of heaven and earth. You, we, are the connection point of heaven and earth. God established tabernacle and he established temple because when we rejected him, he didn't reject us, he pursued us, and he needed to create a space where he could still be among us, veiled though it was before the time of Jesus, where he could still be among us, a place where his glory would manifest and where his presence was available. That's what the tabernacle and temple always involved, making God's glory manifest and making his presence available to the people around. And now you and I are the temple. Think about that. We are to make God's glory manifest. And we are to make his presence 
accessible to the people around us. It's not kind of a minor thing. It's absolutely central to why we're here. Otherwise, why would we even be here if it was only about my relationship with God, my enjoyment with God, my transformation by God? All that happens, and when I'm face-to-face with Jesus, why not just take me out? Because God is continuing to work in a broken and sinful world, a world where a 16-year-old can show up and start shooting, and people are going, where is God? Well, the question is, where are we? Because he's in us, and he said, you're temple. You go out into this world. All right, Char- Charlie spoke a little bit about the, uh, right at the end of his message on uh, the Ezekiel temple, which is a, a, a vision that Ezekiel had about a temple yet to come, and There's a river that flows out of it into the Dead Sea, and wherever that river flows, death is overcome by life, and things are vibrant and beautiful. Now, the the dynamics of the temple have been the same through every generation. The the mechanisms are a little different, but the dynamics are the same. From the temple, you and me, God wants life to flow out and overcome death. And he says, I want you to be my presence in this world. I want you to show my glory to this world. I want you to make me accessible to this world as individuals and as a collective group, right? Whether you see it or not, that little square halo thing is above you because you are the connection between heaven and earth. And God wants people to experience himself through you, through me, through us. So hopefully you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read that passage that they actually quoted in the video. And uh, I want to distill out two things. There's, there's so much that could be said. In fact, I cut a bunch out of the sermon from the first service because I didn't get to some other things that I wanted to. So you, you can come both services sometimes and you get a different experience. There's just so much to say. And I, I want to get to some key points here that I want to develop a little bit more. Um, so if you want to follow along, starting in verse 4, as you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, right? We're both the temple and the priests, just like Jesus. We saw that last week, that he comes as temple, but that metaphor is not sufficient, so he's also priest. Temple is where God's presence is made known, and he is accessible, and then the priest is the one who helps connect people to that reality. So Jesus is both the one who shows us and manifests God's full presence and makes it available, and then he helps connect us to that reality. And you and I are the same thing. We are the place, collectively and individually, where God will manifest himself and make himself accessible to others, and we have the privilege of helping that happen. Only the priests of old would offer sacrifices that we're familiar with from the sacrificial system. Ours are spiritual sacrifices, and we'll see what those are in just a moment. He quotes some scripture about Christ. It it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word 
as they were destined to do. So there's two options. How we respond to Jesus changes everything. Whether we become a stone within the growing temple of God, we become part of that reality where God's presence is manifest, his glory is shown, and his accessible to others, or whether we're outside of that. And Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one from which everything else takes its shape, takes its structure, derives its strength. He's the foundation of the building, and then God builds us into that reality so that until Jesus returns, when everything is made right all at once, until Jesus returns, his presence shows up wherever his people are. And his glory shines forth wherever his people are. And his help and his power and his grace is available to anybody who will take advantage of it wherever his people are because that's what temple does. It makes God experienceable. He's everywhere present all the time and always active, but we don't know that and see that naturally. He's got to do something to say, look, look here, start here. That's where you'll be able to see it and experience it. And in this era, this time, that starting point is you. It's me. We're the temple of God. Here to offer spiritual sacrifices. Continuing on. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now stop there for just a second because this is going to help us understand our function. In verse 5, verses 4 and 5, it describes us, and it says, you are like living stones, you're built up as a spiritual house, and then it gives the reason, the purpose, the outcome, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. And then we get down to verse 9, which is continuing in the same context. He's just given us, kind of expanded out a little bit of the picture of Jesus from the Old Testament, and then he gets back to his main flow of argument here. And he starts describing us again. This is who you are, and this is what result or outcome is. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Right? Our spiritual sacrifices, our priestly function is the proclamation of the excellency of God in this world. It's to be the temple. Here's what God looks like. Here's his glory. Here's his greatness. And here's how you can know him. He's, he's put that right through our lives. Once you were not a people, verse 10, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Yeah, there's two things that I want to distill out of here for us for this morning as we wrestle with, okay, I'm the temple of God. What does that mean? He's, he's made me this temple, this priest, so that I can proclaim his excellencies in the world, so that I can bring him glory, so that I can manifest his glory, be kind of a, a modern um, interpretation of the Shekinah presence of God. I, here I am, and God, not me, but through me, God's manifesting himself so people can see he's glorious. And at the same time, here's how they connect with God, right through me. Not that I have opened the pathway. Jesus did that, but I'm a steward of, I've got the keys to that pathway because I've got the message 
that will open that relationship opportunity. So God's put me here to that end. And there's two things that I want to focus this on briefly. Four words, uh, two short phrases that will help us. The first one is grammatically incorrect, which means for those of you that are real sticklers, it will drive you nuts and you'll twitch. And my, that's good because that twitch will cause it to stick. And for those of you that don't really get hung up on the grammar, it's actually more punchy that way, so I'm hopeful it'll stick. Right? So here it is. Um, now that I said all that stuff, I forgot what it is. Oh, there it is. Um, here are the two phrases. Live different. I function as God's temple in this world as I live different. And then the second piece, share Christ. Live different, share Christ. If I will do that, God will manifest his glory and he will bring people into relationship with him. And that's actually why I'm here. That's why we're here. And we have to ask ourselves how are we delivering on that? That's what a temple's supposed to be. Is there something corrupt within me that is preventing that from happening? Whether it's corrupt character or, or corrupt worldview or corrupt dreams and passions, somewhere I'm off base, right? I can't make something happen. It's gotta be God's presence. That's, in fact, one of the first things we learned when we came to the temple. Starts with his presence, but then it flows out through practices, it starts with a relationship that is then embodied in these rituals of worship that we can connect with him through, but it's always rooted first in God pursuing us and being with us, but given that reality, how am I delivering? How am I responding so that he can do what he's wanting to do? That's the question. So live different, share Christ. Um, I want to just point out a couple of quick phrases here to help us unpack this. Live different. There's, there's some things that are really obvious, right? Um, it says in verse 11, we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's a certain character that we're supposed to have, right? And uh, some of us, that's where we actually need to start. When Jesus shows up at the temple in Jerusalem, the first thing he does is cleans house because it's corrupt. And some of us may need God to come in and clean house because we've allowed things to be corrupted. But before that, there's something actually more foundational that I want to focus this on instead. Um, in verse 11, it says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from these things. Those are interesting word choices. Those same words are picked up in Hebrews 11 describing the patriarchs and how they lived looking beyond this life to what God was about not going back to what was comfortable, not going back to what they knew, but instead kept pressing into what was coming because they were more defined by God's call into relationship with him and into a mission in the world than they were by the culture around them and everything that they'd known. And it really, those words are rooted in Genesis 23. If you want to turn over there, um, that would be wonderful. Very first book in the Bible, so it's easy to find. Um, and it's one of those passages, you know, I read through the Bible every year, and for years and years, it was one of those that I'm like, oh, do I have to read that one? Right? It was, it was almost at the level of so-and-so had so-and-so had so-and-so had so-and-so, and you kind of go, oh, man. You know, and I'm a rule follower, so I actually read every so-and-so who had so-and-so. Some of you are like, so-and-so had, and then this guy came out. Okay, I'm ready. Let's go to the next chapter. 
This is almost at that level, and I just thought it was the driest, most boring chapter anywhere until I really wrestled it through, and it's, it's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture now. That's not an exaggeration, even though on the surface it's still really dry because of what it really represents. There's something profound, and there's also profound things embedded in a lot of those uh, lists of names, but that, that's another sermon for another day. Um, we'll just start. Genesis 23 starts by saying Sarah, that's the wife of Abraham, lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. He just said that. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. There's the words. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what the apostles would have been so saturated in, which is almost certainly what Peter has in mind. He's actually, when he's telling his audience that they are sojourners and strangers, he's thinking of Abraham. He's thinking of this chapter. He says, I'm a sojourner and a foreign among you. Give me property among you for burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And then the rest of the chapter doesn't get much more exciting than that. And that's why for years I just went, oh, okay. Until I started wrestling with what's actually going on here. What's actually going on here is really profound. And it's central to what we're being called to by Peter. Abraham's been called out of his land and his people and his culture and his experience and everything he's known. And he's unrooted and taken to a new place. Imagine coming home. God speaks to Abraham. And he goes home to Sarah and says, it's time for us to move. Oh, how do you know that? God told me. Really? How did he tell you? I don't, he just kind of spoke to me. What does God look like? I didn't see him. How do you know it was God? I mean, you want me to, uh, you know, uproot everything and go somewhere because you have this idea? No, God really said, so we're going. All right? Where are we going? I don't know. Wait, hold on. You don't know? Then how are we going to get there? Say, well, we'll start, and we'll go that way. That's your plan. We'll start, and we'll go that way. Are you like 14? I mean, when you're in junior high, that's a great plan. Hey, let's go do this, ah, you know, and you just go do it, and that's fine, but you're, you're a well-established man, and I'm your wife, and we've got to just go that way and see what happens? No, no, God will tell us. I mean, it's a crazy thing. It really is crazy. And we read it all through this backwards uh, layering of faith, and we miss how staggering that was. They move to this place, and when they get there, it's filled with other people who say, oh, no, 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 you must have misheard God. This isn't your land. This is our land. But if you want to, you can, you can kind of camp in my backyard. That'll be okay. And that's the way they live for decades. God's made these huge promises and nothing's happening. And finally, Sarah dies. And this is a pivotal moment. This is a moment when everything starts to really sink in in a fresh way. He's had, God said, you're going to have all kinds of descendants. He's had two sons, one of whom he's had to send away. And now his wife is dead. He's in a place where he owns nothing and he's a stranger and he's been living in people's backyards in a tent. And God's made these grand promises. This is your land. You're a great nation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now his wife is gone and he has to do just the, the fundamental thing of burying her. Where do you bury somebody? You bury them at home, 
right? We, we're so unrooted in our culture that we miss that. But, you know, when, when uh, Joseph was dying in Egypt, he said, hey, God's going to send you out of here years from now. Take my bones. I don't belong here. I belong back there. When Jacob died in Egypt, Joseph and his brothers went back to the land of Israel to bury Jacob next to Isaac and Rebekah, his parents, and Abraham and Sarah, his grandparents, but that, none of that's happened. Home has been Mesopotamia, and they've been living this sojourner's life, unrooted, with nothing but the calling and promises and direction and mission of God. That's all they have. They've got nothing else. And in that moment, Abraham literally has to weigh out what matters. What's going to define me? Where's my identity? Where's my security? And what's my life about? Is it about everything else that everyone looks at, the, the culture, the security, the, the things around me? Nobody would blame me if I sank my roots in there because that's what you do. Or is there something greater going on where God says, no, 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 your roots are in me. Your roots are in my promise and my calling and my mission for your life. And you just have to trust me. And even if you own nothing, even if you have to buy the land I told you that I would give you, this is your home. And so when Abraham buys the land and buries Sarah, it's this profound statement on his part to say, what defines me, who I am, and what I'm about is God's promise, my relationship with him, and his mission for my life. And that's totally different than anyone around him. And when Peter is talking about us being this temple, these priests that are here to present God's glorious goodness to the world in such a way that they can respond, he says, start here. Be like Abraham. Make your choice. The temple of God has to be the connection between heaven and earth. It's not just earth. Everyone around you is anchored there. You're this connection. You need to anchor here, actually. You need to anchor in God's purpose. You need to anchor in your relationship with him. You need to 